Let me bring you up to speed on where we are, what we're doing. We're in the middle of a series on what non-Christians think about Christianity. And so I want to review last week real fast. Here's the roadmap. This is what we've covered so far. Some of the attitudes that were identified in a Barna study that Christians are too sheltered. We covered that in one week. Last week we covered that Christians are too judgmental and hypocritical. We'll review that in a second. Tonight we're talking about Christians being too political and in particular, in some ways, anti-homosexual. And in the coming weeks, we've got more stuff on the attitudes that come up from this research. If I could, let me just jump back to last week. We identified in a survey that was done among Christians, born-again Christians, self-identified born-again Christians, when they were asked what it was that they thought the Christian life was about, the majority or the highest responders responded it was about being good and not sinning. If that's really what we think Christianity is all about, no wonder there's so much of a label of hypocrisy, and no wonder we're subject to so much judgment, both ourselves judging each other and judging outsiders. Look at hypocrisy. When outsiders get the message that Christianity is about being good and not sinning, they have a reason to label us as hypocrites, because if you look at our actions, we're no different than anybody. Some of us should be trying to be different. That's really that road of sanctification. I want to clarify something because somebody came up and said, does that mean that we shouldn't try to be better? No, I'm not saying that at all. Part of being on this road, this road of sanctification, this road of becoming more Christ-like is learning every day how to be more Christ-like, how to be set apart, how to be holy like the holy God who called us and saved us. But if we think it's all about rules, then no wonder anybody from the outside says, well, you're not living up to them. Same thing is true about judgment, we said last week. That if we really have a rules and regulations religion, that's what encourages so many of us to run around pointing fingers at people because we're trying to figure out who's acting right and who's not. And why we spend so much of our time putting on this Christian costume, zipping it up and going to church, you know, it explains two things that have always been going on in the church. Is there anywhere other than the church where people smile so much? <laughs> I mean, it's almost like that's the best defense to keep people away. Like, hey, leave me alone. I'm happy. I'm not sinning. They, they just put that smile on, right? It seems like this type of thing attacks outward manifestations. All right? 20% of the American population smokes. You ever seen anybody smoke at a church? Why? Because that's an outward thing. We just go, oh, let's not do that. Wait a minute. What about what's going on inside of us? What about that? People don't cuss around a church. Why? Because it's outward. People could see it and go, oh, you're not a Christian. You said the F word. <laughs> Yeah, but what about all the other things we're thinking inside? Again, I'm not advocating that we go to church and cuss, but it's funny how we curb our behaviors that are outwardly seen, and yet inside we're the same. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was talking about? You hypocrites who are like whited sepulchers, all clean from the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Isn't that how we are sometimes? It seems that the charge is correctly leveled. But I wanted to identify last week that a lot of it comes from this attitude that we have, that it's unchristian to show off any of the sinful nature that we have. And we should be on that road. But we should also be working together to help people get there. Let me bring out a couple things, too, that came out from last week's talk that I really felt we needed to say. One is, there was some frustration last week, not really at the discussion in here, but it's almost impossible to change the direction of what's happening. Some people really felt it. It felt heavy in here. As we realized how much and how pervasive hypocrisy was and judgment in our churches were. Is there any hope at all? 
So I wanted to point out, just to even just bring it out in the open, yes, it is frustrating, and yes, it seems like there's almost nothing we can do to change it sometimes, especially when there's other people in the church, a lot of you felt who, I'm going to put this in quotes, ruin it for the rest of us. Like there's nothing we can do to muzzle those people. But I want to identify that frustration. Number two, I want to say, yeah, it's not all our fault. It's true that in society today, if you're playing a word association game, the words judgmental and hypocrisy just come up when you talk about Christians, whether we're actually doing that or not. There's just kind of a stigma. It's there. Maybe it's deserved, maybe it's not, but it's there. I actually think it is deserved, but it's also a little bit unfair that we almost don't even get a chance to rebut it because it's already kind of the presumption. So, yeah, some of you talked about that. Here's a third thing that happened. I think we should still remember that the blame does come back to us, even if it's not always fair. I was reading this week about so many of these groups in Christianity that talk about family values. And then there was a response from some of the people who really criticized the church. Family values. Who has the highest divorce rate in all of America? Evangelical Christians. Who has the lowest rate of divorce in America? Agnostics and atheists. How is that possible in a family values type thing? We leave ourselves open. If we're going to be the ones that are talking about family values and take to the airwaves and put ourselves out there, maybe we should figure out a way to help improve our families and not have them disintegrate so much. And finally, I want to say this. We are going to end the series, hopefully, with some things we can actually do. Because I know I'm delivering like <laughs> five or six weeks of bad news. And some of you were like last week, like, are we going to do anything about it? Now we're just here to just moan and complain about it. No, we're going to end with something. Let's go into tonight. Tonight we're tacking two different things that came out in the Barna Group research where they asked, what attitudes do you have about Christians? The top one was that Christians were anti-homosexual. 91% of the respondents believe that Christians are anti-homosexual. And 75% that they were too involved in politics. Okay? So let's dive into that a little bit. We said this last week as we left off. One of the things that we said, citing from Dan Kimball's book, they like Jesus but not the church. And other people have said this too, that Christians are too often known for what they're against more than what they're for. And we use this kind of as an example, right? We know that Christians are more often known for what they're against. Now, this bothered some people last week that I put this up here. It especially bothered Jill because she's an editor. And... <laughs> The fact that anybody could spell homosexuals as two words, like homo and sexuals, just really drives an editor nuts. Yeah, and it's right there. So I decided, I decided to help these people out a little bit and help Jill out so she could concentrate a little better. We put the little editor's marks right there, you know, to kind of like see if we can put them together just a little bit, you know, just to show that they really should be like one word, like bring them together. That will help a little bit, just a little bit. All right. We are going to talk about this briefly, because I really want to spend more time on the politics tonight, and I'll show you why, rather than just homosexuality. Last night, though, there's about six of us that went to Evergreen Baptist Church. It's an Asian-American evangelical church in Rosemead. And there was a discussion that was held, and it was between the senior pastor, a former pastor who's now actively gay and attending church at the same time, a clinical therapist, and a couple of parents of somebody who is a gay Christian. And there was just a discussion where they spent time dealing with the issues. It was good. It was long, <laughs> like three hours long discussion. And then we went out afterwards and talked about it some more. 
If you want to talk about that afterwards, you might hear us talking about it because it left us with a lot of discussion points. I don't want to dive into it too deeply, but I want to make a couple comments about this anti-homosexuality charge that's leveled against the church. One is, I think we should just start off with the assumption we all struggle with sexuality in a fallen world. We all do. That was a point that was made last night. It's a point that's been made in other places. You know, we tend to find this one area to be different. But if you think about it, we all sin sexually every day. And our notion of sexuality is a fallen notion that's plagued with a lot of problems. And I've talked to enough of you in this room to know that we come from a pretty broken past in this area, most of us. It's going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who says, I've never had struggled in this area or even fallen a temptation in this area in our churches. Number two, I think we just need to, as a general thing, as a church, learn to distinguish between homosexuality as an, as an orientation rather than the behavior. Now, you might have different views about whether the behavior is right or wrong. Some people actually say it's okay. But even before we get to that point, we should just start to distinguish because some of us can't even make that distinction. Some of us can't even understand, as those sign carriers do, that God loves everyone. So behavior aside, look at our behavior. What's the difference? We have to recognize that we as a church have become a real obstacle to people getting to know Christ, especially in this area. It doesn't just affect people who struggle with homosexuality or who are homosexual in orientation. It affects heterosexual people. There are plenty of people that will not consider the church because of our attitude about homosexuality. Now, if our attitude is right, then we need to stand by what the truth is. But if our attitude is that people know signs, that God hates fags, that gays are going to hell, that God can't love those people at all, if that's the attitude, which I don't agree, is the right attitude, that's keeping many people from getting to know Christ. So that's a problem. And finally, the reason I'm not going to go into this too deeply is because we covered this extensively, and I'd like to refer you to it as a shortcut tonight. We did an entire talk on this, on what the church's response should be to homosexuality in one of our previous series. So you can download it from the podcast, exoduspodcast.com. Look for the Examine Your Vision series and go to part six. That's what the whole talk was about. I went back, actually, and reviewed it to make sure that a lot of the concepts that were discussed last night and that we were going to talk about today were, were well covered, and I think they are. So I think we should kind of move forward. I'm still going to use this as an example of our political action, but to spend the entire night talking about it, I'd rather you look at that earlier discussion and use that if you're interested in going deeper. Let's look at the charge that we're too political. Here's a survey that was done of non-Christians, survey on non, of non-Christians asking them to identify who are the best-known Christians that you could identify. So why don't you guys just try it for a second? Throw some out. <laughs> Billy Graham, who else? Rob Bell, James Dobson, who? Yeah, Jesus, how about that, yeah. All right. Jerry Falwell, who else is a well-known Christian? Pat Robertson. Greg Laurie, who else? Rick Warren, Tammy Faye. Jimmy Swaggart, yeah. Charles Stanley. Anyone else? George Bush. Jimmy Carter. Here's the answers. Let's look at the answers to this survey. Non-Christians. Who is the best known Christian to them? Number one, the Pope. The Pope. Oh, you anti-Catholic judgmentalists. Number one, the Pope. 
gaining 16% of the vote. Number two, George Bush, gaining 13% of the vote. Just think, this is the most frequently cited Christian, the Pope, and then George Bush. Number three, Jesus. Coming in at a healthy 9% of the people, thinking of Jesus. Number four, Billy Graham, 7%. You know, trailing Bush, the Pope, and Jesus, but still, he's in the top five. And number five, rounding out the top five greatest Christians, most known, Martin Luther King Jr., coming in at 6%. You notice about this for a moment. Look at how many of these are kind of, I mean, Jesus and Billy Graham, take them out for a second, but there's a couple political figures up there, right? No wonder we're associated a lot with politics, in a way, because our most well-known people, according to non-Christians, are the Pope and George Bush. <coughs> That's a little nutty. But let's ask Christians what they think. Let's ask Christians, all right? Here's the results for Christians. Number one most known, Billy Graham. So you guys thought of him first? There you go, right. Billy Graham, 29%. The Pope, 17%. So for all those people who think that that Protestant Christians and evangelical Christians should not be speaking to Catholics, shame on you. You know, we're all in the kingdom. Number three, George Bush, tied. <laughs> tied the Pope, 17%. Among Christians. All right, he's one of the best known Christians. Notice among Christians, Jesus not yet on the board. All right. <laughs> Number four, most well-known Christian, Martin Luther King Jr., 8%. 8%. And number five, Jesus, getting 7%. Yeah. Let's, let's go a little further. Mother Teresa, 7%. Mother Teresa, Jesus, both wore those funny little outfits. They're tied. All right. Number seven, Mel Gibson. Number seven, Mel Gibson. You know that they took this survey on a Christian college campus. You know. Everybody went and watched The Passion and just thought, Mel Gibson, one of the great Christians of our time, right? Three weeks later. Have you noticed there's no historical figures up here? I mean, you know, the most historical figure is Martin Luther King Jr. Like, nobody, uh, Jesus, of course. But I mean, nobody going back to any memory of anything in our church of its 2,000-year history. James Dobson, number eight. James Dobson. Now, what does this survey mean? Why is this up here? Well, you know, in both surveys, the Pope and George Bush made it pretty high, okay? To me, the two most telling things on the list are George Bush, that he's a well-known Christian. And Mel Gibson's actually really telling to me. Because it just means that we've bought in so much into our culture, like whatever it puts in front of us, we're like, right, Mel Gibson, Jesus, right, okay, he must be a great Christian, right? So maybe that's where we start to identify and others identify us with politics because George Bush is high on both lists. That's a little disturbing that we're so closely associated. I mean, where's, like some of you earlier, like, where's Rick Warren? Where's those guys, right? Not even on the list. Like the closest guy who even is, is in the church other than Billy Graham, who's way up there, like James Thompson, like legitimately doing something. So, yeah, do you have a comment? Well, I think one of the weirdest things to me is that George Bush is so high on both lists. And yeah, I guess everyone knows he's a Christian, but does anyone know anything about his theology or what he believes? No, it's just, 
oh yeah, George Bush is a Christian, but nothing about, hey, this is where I stand in Jesus. That's true. And if you ask people about George Bush, my guess is, and this didn't come out because it's not written down, my guess is the people who are non-Christians who identify them are like, oh yeah, George Bush is a Christian, right? They're probably, that's their attitude. And the Christian's like, George Bush is a Christian. They're probably a different attitude. All right, so it is what it is. We can only draw so much out of this. It just seemed kind of strange. So maybe one of the reasons we're so associated with being political is that we're associated with the president as somehow he's our leader. Let's talk about the charges against us being political. And I want to recognize one right up front. Sometimes we do have to stand up for things that are politically or popularly or culturally unpopular. So I don't want to throw it out completely. These are just a couple examples I thought of. Like, for example, you hear a lot of talk about how Christians are crazy because they stand for abstinence programs. Hey, look, one of the things that we have to face is that biblically, God's standard is one of purity. And that means that we should advocate abstinence. Does that mean that that's all we should advocate? No, but I don't think we could ever just say, hey, you know what? It's a new world. Let's just let everybody do whatever they want. Now, in America, forget America, in the church, abstinence is unpopular. Because we know that 75% of people are doing whatever they want outside of marriage. It doesn't matter. Okay, that's the reality. But that doesn't mean we compromise the standard. It may not be popular. You guys know among your friends that this part is not popular with people. Like, this is old-fashioned. But it's still God's standard. Same thing with the sanctity of life. I mean, I don't know where you come out of it. And I don't even want to know whether it has to do with whether you think it should be a national policy or not. I'm just saying, just as a matter of principle, the Bible seems to be pretty clear in protecting life. And that might not be popular. People might label that as anti-choice or some sort of tyrannical system that's trying to oppress the rights of others. I just feel that we at least have to affirm that God is for the sanctity of life. But that doesn't really answer the question about politics. Then what do you do with it next? How does that interface with our national agenda? Or should it at all? I mean, I, what I just described is not what your political attitude should be. I just described something that belongs to what the church should say or stand for. Tonight, I want to hear from you as to what, the, what that means. Maybe we just leave it there. We don't do anything more. So first, just let's recognize that sometimes we stand for things that are not popular. But sometimes we tend to use Christianity to advance our views and our biases. I have three examples up here that, that I've done some research on this week. Do you know that a lot of pastors in, our, in, in the churches in America early on advocated the Revolutionary War based on biblical principles? But what was the prevailing attitude in the colonies at the time, if you remember? Any of you go to school, take history, right? Some of you? What was the prevailing attitude? Like, we want to get out of this thing, right? We believe in all these philosophers that are telling us that we can make our own country and have our own freedoms and all these kinds of things. Those philosophies, though, they come from the Bible? We decided that we wanted to be free. And then pastors began preaching that that's what God wanted, right? If you'd crossed over the ocean and gone to England, I'm sure their pastors were saying something totally different. They were probably citing passages about rebellion or whatever it was. Take a look at slavery. How many pastors in the South spent time justifying slavery on biblical principles? I read some of those sermons this week. 
all of the sermons that were preached on why slavery should be continued, why it was in the best interest of both the slaves and those who were their owners to continue this system. I also rented Amazing Grace this week and saw the story of William Wilberforce, who spent all those years trying to abolish the slave trade in England. There is a great Christian. What side do you take? What I'm really trying to say is people in the South wanted to establish a system and keep it in place. They found Christianity as a way to do it. Is Christianity pro-slavery? Well, if you were living in the South at that time and you read those sermons, you would conclude that it was. Do we believe it's pro-slavery today? Or do we believe that people just took whatever they wanted to take so they could advocate their own pre-existing political views? Segregation. You know, if you read the sermons of white preachers during the Civil Rights Movement, during the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, even during those turbulent 60s, and you read what they were saying about how good segregation is, how it's justified, you'd think, where are they getting this from? Do you really believe that they came to the Bible with an open mind and said, hmm, I wonder what the Bible says about this? Or did they already believe that segregation was right? I read the stories of South African pastors, white South African pastors during a time of apartheid who believed that God wanted the races to be separate and that apartheid was the best way to have national unity. And they preached on it. So the question is, do we do that today? Like, what about these issues? What about our bigotry against homosexuality? What about our prejudice against Islam? What about our resistance to amnesty for immigrants? Now, hold on a second. I don't want, to, like, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to tell you what you should think about these issues. All I want you to think about is, when you talk to Christians about these issues, does it ever seem to you that they've already decided what the issue should be and then are looking for a way to have Christianity justify that outcome? Because then we're misusing the scriptures. Then God's word is not speaking to us. We're using it for our own agenda. And that is why we're labeled as too political. Look at the one about Islam, for example. I spent about 12 or 14 hours, Ryan knows, he went to this convention, just listening to DVDs from a recent convention about the rise of Islam. It was put on by a church. It was shocking, the ways they use scripture. And I couldn't help but think over and over, these people are scared of Muslims. These people hate Muslims. These people are worried that Islam is influencing America. But they're worried as people, as Americans. And then they find a Christian way to fight that. I don't think that's what the Bible is for. I mean, if Muslims are coming into America, praise God. Because we can't minister to a lot of people in their own countries. Now they're here. Shouldn't the church be rejoicing that we have access to people who believe differently than we do so we can finally have a mission field here where it's actually sometimes even safer? Shouldn't we just respect people, period? Does God hate anyone who doesn't agree with us? Because that's the message I heard. And again, it seemed to me that they already had their agenda. And now they needed some verses to back it up. And man, did they go searching for some funny verses to back up some of these views. How about the ones about amnesty for immigrants? Like, I, again, I, I know this is a complex issue. But I just read through an essay that tried to walk through the issue from a biblical perspective, not from a predisposed, like, here's the answer we're going to get to. And it is, it is so difficult to walk through this issue. But it seems that people are in one camp all the time. So that's something we have to look out for. Here's another one. 
Third point, other times I think Christians, we're kind of hijacked as a group. One of the great points that Dan Kimball makes in his book is that sometimes we get attributed with certain causes that we didn't even get in on. It's just that we tend to vote for certain candidates so we get kind of just pulled into whatever they're advocating. I think George Bush being one of the prominent Christians is identified as one of those things. I've talked to so many Christians who are for the war in Iraq. You ask them like, why? And they start citing these like biblical principles like, do you think that George Bush invaded Iraq because the Bible said so? What was the reason? I don't even want to get into it. <laughs> but I can almost guarantee that it didn't have to do with him sitting down thinking, Lord, I feel that you're telling me from something here in, this, in the scriptures that we need to do this. But for some reason, Christians believe that's happened. Not all. I went looking at the site of the moral majority. I wanted to see what they thought, for example. Do some research on the moral majority. Anyone know what the moral majority is? Group of conservative Christians who want to take back America for a while. They had a group. Jerry Falwell was their leader. So I wanted to see what are their beliefs, because they're politically active Christians. What were some of their beliefs? So they listed some things, but among the top three, like, it was like the third one was this one. Opposition to Equal Rights Amendment and the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. That's what the moral majority was opposed to. Let's, let's take that down for a second. The moral majority is opposed to equal rights for women. How's that moral? <laughs> How is that a biblical issue or a Christian issue? Here's the other one. Anyone know what the strategic arms limitation talks were, the SALT treaties? Anyone know what those were? What is it? It's, it's hopefully to reduce you know, how many so-and-so missiles and, and such-and-such that nations can have with the hope that less missiles equals less war and destruction. Right. We negotiated with the Soviets these specific reductions in nuclear and ballistic missiles. What does that have to do with Christianity? That we should oppose a peace treaty to reduce the number of nuclear weapons that we're pointing against each other. And this is in the top three things that they had on the things that they were forming the, the, the group to do. Jeremy. I also know, just as a curious uh, point in history, uh, Jerry Falwell and others were also opposed to desegregation. And in fact, the majority of those members also rallied around the moral, you know, this moral majority uh, around Bob Jones University, because Bob Jones refused to desegregate. And so they kind of, a lot of these members formed this group, you know, and at least an attempt to defend why they didn't have to desegregate. At least the founders of the Mormon majority, many of them were even against desegregation. It wasn't until the federal government forced them by saying, okay, well, we're going to withdraw your funding, that they started to, you know, change their Yeah, how is this a Christian issue? I mean, look, I don't care what your political view is. Maybe you think that the worst thing ever is America to, to stop pointing its weapons at Russia. I, I don't care, though. The question is, why is the moral majority opposed to it? Why form Christians and raise money to oppose equal rights for women and a reduction in nuclear and ballistic missiles? Because religion will give them the manpower they need. Yeah, is it because they already have an agenda and they can couch it in Christianity? So we get tagged with this as a pro-war kind of group. Christians are for taking over other countries and imposing their beliefs on them. Why? because our biggest leaders that are identified are like that. Because more people probably know Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson than maybe some of the more well-known pastors that some of you, somebody mentioned Rob Bell, for example. 
Probably nobody outside of Christianity knows who he is. But everybody knows who Jerry Falwell is and Pat Robertson. Why? Because when 9-11 happened, they said, oh, yeah, that was a curse on America because of the gays in America. That's what it is. God's striking back at America in 9-11 because we tolerate homosexuality. That's what it is. I mean, how much damage does that comment do? How many years do you have to spend undoing that? When I also say that we get hijacked sometimes, you know, there's a weird thing in politics. You know, like this last presidential nomination in the Republican Party was very strange because we finally had an evangelical Christian running, Mike Huckabee, right? And how many people supported him? Not enough. But what was most interesting was who didn't support him. If you go down the list of the great Christian moral majority leaders, some people question whether James Dobson was among them, but you could go down the list. A number of prominent evangelical leaders, who did they support? They first supported Mitt Romney. And there's a list of the number of people who joined his group, prominent like Christian PR groups, prominent like moral majority members, got behind Mitt Romney. Why? Is it because they shared beliefs? No. Well, of course it is. They shared political beliefs. He was conservative enough for them. He was going to kick out immigrants. He was going to stop all the things that they didn't like. And when he couldn't continue on, now they're backing somebody else. Let's push on for a second. Let's, let's throw out some things and now you guys can push back. Yeah, Ryan. Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm listening to this stuff and I think part of the problem or a lot of the problem is, is that like Christians as a whole, they listen to their pastor of their church and what they're saying. So even if it's biblical, and the pastor saying it from his point of view, then the church usually listens to that because they're spoon-fed what they're supposed to be taught and what they're supposed to believe. So, you know, if there's, you know, Christian leaders that, you know, are trying to support a certain political party or a certain this or a certain that, then the congregation gets behind the pastor and saying, yeah, we believe what he says, so they do what the pastor wants, you know? Outsiders to Christianity? can't stand the notion that pastors brainwash their congregations into believing a certain political thing. I mean, if you're going to ask somebody seeking spirituality, what's the role of the church? It's probably like, well, I suppose it's to bring you closer to God, tell you about Jesus, right? Is it to tell you that you should limit, we should oppose the strategic arms limitations talks? Is it to oppose immigration, for example? Uh, by the way, some churches are in favor of immigration and amnesty, and they preach that too. And I think outsiders look at it and go, uh, you know what, it's not supposed to be about this. Well, you can evaluate that. That's what they think. I'm not saying we have to accede to that just because they say that, but that's their view. You guys are too close to the political thing, and your pastors are telling you what to believe about politics. So here's some things to throw up that I just want to throw out kind of like, just to see, maybe it'll stir some comments from you. One is, my opinion, and a lot of others, America has never been a Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation today. I think most of us would agree, but I don't believe it's ever been one. It has been a nation that predominantly has been populated by Christians. But I don't believe that you could ever make the statement that it is a Christian nation or that it was. You want to disagree? Because that's a popular notion in our churches. You know, we got to get back to the Christian nation that it used to be. Yeah? Could you argue that it was more Christian? Because, like... At least aspects of it were like definitely more following biblical standards, whether motives were it was right or not. Yeah, and here's the reason. Because historically, up until the 1940s, we never had any immigration. 
that was not from a Christian background nation. I mean, all the immigrants you look at, the Irish, the Germans, the English, the Dutch, I mean, you go down the list, we had primarily European immigration. And then when you get to like, even in our interactions with Mexico and those places, you're talking about just Catholic Christian. It was politically correct to be a Christian and to be a person of faith when you were in office. When you enter into the latter half of the 20th century, that started to radically change. People from all different views now live here. But people started to get really wigged out and, and, and dream up a whole mythology of how we used to be Christian. But if you really look at it carefully, it was easier to govern that way and to appeal to the Bible. But now in this society, I think it's more difficult. So that's point one that's making it more difficult. Here's another one. Let's get this straight, I think, as a church. It'll help us to improve in this area. We're not a government in exile. We shouldn't be waiting for the chance to retake the government. That isn't our role. What is our role? What's the role of the church? Maybe that's why we get this wrong all the time. What's the role of the church? Share the gospel. Share the gospel? What? Lead people to Christ. Lead people to Christ? We are the body of Christ in the world. That's who we are. Here's another one. Jesus didn't use political office. I mean, he can use people who are in political office. So that, I'm not telling you stay away from politics. If you feel called to, to give your gifts in that area, yeah, there's a place for that. I don't want to be black and white on this and say, hey, politics is bad. I mean, that's one of the things I struggle with. Because we saw the example that I mentioned earlier. Somebody like William Wilberforce who spent all his time trying to do what he thought was right, but he did it through the political process. But Jesus himself didn't use that. He could have, but that wasn't what he came to do. Yeah. The thing is pointing to point out that that's what all of the Jews had been anticipating from the Messiah was he was going to come in, he was going to sweep the Romans out, he was going to take over and literally rule as the king of Israel. And it's the exact opposite thing of what Jesus decided to do. I mean, he came as a humble carpenter and, you know, walked around poor his whole life. And then what was politically, I mean, the most politically humiliating death that can be assigned. And when Jesus was questioned about politics in the one real example we have about taxes, for example, he wisely distanced himself from that engagement. Let me just give you a few more pointers about this that I think will help us in doing something about this political stigma that we have. What do you guys see in these pictures? Let's just talk about them for a minute. We've got people holding up signs saying, God hates you, sodomites, abortionists, drunkards, you know, homosexuality, abomination, repent and turn to Christ. Let's take it in for a moment. What do you notice about, what do you think their motivations are? Is there anything good here, by the way? I mean, let's, let's be fair. What's going on here? It's like the people that follow the rose parade, and they're just yelling, God hates you. That's so strange. help anything. If you interviewed this person, one of these people, I mean, I think we should just make some observations, because I think, like, rather than just turn them into cartoons, maybe there's something here. By the way, has anyone noticed that it's just kind of weird that it just seems like genetically there's like an association between sign carriers and rednecks, but I, just yeah. my thought. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the question. I guess what it is is if you were to interview one of these people, what do you think they would say about why they're doing this? Why? I mean, look, they got something better to do. Joe. I think a lot of it is fear that somehow things like immorality in their eyes it's going to spread an influence, and then they're going to feel encroached upon in their little moral bubble, and they're not going to be able to do anything about it. Okay, so they see the world changing around them. I think that's something we should identify. That's one thing they see. I think it's a good point, because some of us ignore why they're there sometimes. I mean, these people are pretty committed. 
Maybe they should be committed, but I mean, they're pretty committed. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I just want to understand how none of them noticed. I remember reading right after Heath Ledger died that a, a giant group of Christians came to his funeral and picketed it with signs like this and said, God killed him because he played a gay man in a movie. Who is this going to affect in a positive way? Yeah. I want to play the devil's advocate. Didn't Jonah go into Nineveh and say, repent or perish? I think that's a good point. So if you ask that guy, why are you doing this? And he says, it's because this is what God commanded Jonah to do. Would you accept that and say, okay, that's good. I think that's right. This person isn't a complete idiot. Maybe they have a motivation that is to save people. Randy. Jonah was also helping in the back of his head that the people wouldn't repent. Yeah, he didn't want to. So do you think there's any similarity here? I mean, I think there is, by the way, because sometimes when I see somebody carrying a sign, I, I hope, even as hurtful as it may be to some people and as harmful to their efforts, as much as it turns people away, maybe Ryan's right in one way that they believe that they're following God's command to tell people to repent and turn back to God. <coughs> but I also think that sometimes in the back of their mind, they hate the people that they have to speak to, like Jonah, and in the end are saying, I hope you burn anyway. I mean, I got to give you a chance. I'm holding a sign, you know, but if you don't come, I win either way because I don't really care. In fact, I'd rather that you burn. And I think some of those people actually believe that. I mean, I've read some of their statements that they actually believe that there are certain people who cannot be saved because of what they've done. And homosexuality is usually the highest on that list. Anyone else? Jeremy. Yeah, I'm not sure the story of Jonah is how you should go about doing things. Because you might even, like if you take this specific example, you might say the second part, you, everyone should repent and turn to Christ. But that's not what the Bible says about homosexuality. So the first part's not even correct. Or at least the first part's not adequate in addressing kind of the deeper issue. So you might have, you might have some good intent, right, the bottom part. But whether or not, you know, you're, you're really just a Jonah, it's, not, it's just not clear, you know. I just, want to, I just want to get into these people's heads for a moment because, you know, before we just dismiss them outright and judge them, I want to know, like, why are they doing what they're doing? Anyone else? Philip. Uh, what they're used to in their bubble of whoever they are, wherever they are, like, they're used to, like, some aspect of a Christian bubble, whether it be true or not. And then all of a sudden there's other things in the world that, you know, like, they don't know how to rationalize that with because they don't know anything. And so they get afraid and just like say, okay, well, I can't really debate this with you because it's too hard and I don't know it, and so just reject it outright. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Like, I told you you're wrong, and that's it, you know? I would suspect that these people begin from a basis of homophobia. I would suspect they already think that homosexuality is unnatural. All right? Now, again, I'm not even going to talk about whether that's right or wrong. There's that other talk on the website you can go download and deal with. But they start there, and then they go, wow, I'm glad I found some verses in the Bible to support what I believe. And that's the end of the analysis for me. There is a fear of the society encroaching on the way they believe. And there's also a pride in that we're right. The Bible says we're right, and you're all wrong. It's both. I think it is kind of a fear, but maybe just a fear of their own spirituality, how good they are and if they're good enough. And I mean, I don't have any statistics to back this up. The people I've encountered that are like this, I think it, like, it has to do with them struggling with their own faith. 
So it's like homosexuality is worse than what I'm doing. So let's focus on that and hate on that and at least I'm not doing this. Or people that tend to struggle a lot more and with sin tend to be the ones that are like speaking out against it or go to that extreme opposite because any little thing around them like they fall. So those are two things I tend to see with these people. Okay. Look, the world is changing. If you watch the media every day, there's been a study that's counted the number of shows that have a gay character in the show. And it... It's every show. It's every show, pretty much, right? And yet we know that representatively, there's like 2 to 3% of the population that's actually gay. So if they said, hey, I think there's an agenda going on to liberalize this country and to push these views on us that's going on through the media or through activists, I wouldn't say, hey, you're totally wrong, you're a conspiracy theorist. I'd say, okay, that might be happening. But what's the reaction to that? There's changes going on in the culture. What's our response as Christians? To take to the streets and retake the government? To take to the streets and hate people and demonstrate our hate? Or is it to say what the church has always been about, what Jesus was always about, which is to engage the culture, wherever it is? Last week we talked about the guy, the story about the guy who was wearing the t-shirt that says God hates whatever and, and he was so proud of the t-shirt in the story because he said like if just one person repents as a result of the t-shirt then it was worth wearing. But the fallacy there is what about the thousands that it's alienated? Like if you really believe a soul is worth that much that you would wear this t-shirt even though you probably would wear it anyway is the real answer. But that you believe that it's worth it then you must place a lot of worth in a soul and I do too. That's why it kills me when I see thousands of people repelled by these actions. Last night, and this is, a, this is a point that's made in our earlier talk from Examine Your Vision, but I'm going to repeat it. Last night, the person who was the openly gay pastor, or that used to be a pastor, is now just a Christian, he said that what he hates the most is when people say, hate the sin, you know, love the person, but hate the sin. And he, he was pretty emotional about it. And I've read this numerous times in other research I've done that this is really a careless thing that we as Christians have adopted. It's more of a bumper sticker slogan than it is real to say, love the person, hate the sin. But what's funny is, putting aside that, I was thinking about that phrase all night long. He was offended because it meant you really hate me. But what I started thinking about is, it's not even true. Do we really hate sin that much? We don't hate our sin. We hate other people's sin. I mean, all of us sin sexually all the time, and we don't hate it. We might feel guilty about it. We might, like, at some point struggle with it. But none of us hate our sin. Well, because if we hated it, we'd change it. Probably would be true repentance at that point, right? We would see sin the way God does. We would have a wrath towards our own sin. So it's a little bit, no, it's more than a little bit. It's a lot hypocritical to be hating somebody else's sin when we don't even hate our sin. And that's more in our control, by the way, our sin. And it's making a judgment call. That's the bottom line for me. It's making a judgment on people and on things that they do. These people are making that judgment. People who do the love the sinner, hate the sin thing. You're making a judgment. That's not my call. That's not my business. But we do have a standard, though. I'll push back on that a little bit because I think we do have a standard. God gave us a standard to live up to. It's, it's a very difficult standard. When we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, you guys saw how difficult that was. So I don't think we should also cop out and say, too tough, shouldn't do it. And if you're part of the body of Christ, I think it is our business. Because everything that we do in the body pollutes the entire body. 
So we have to hold each other accountable. And last week we kind of, kind of contrasted accountability and judgment. It's the motivation that's the difference a lot of times. You're holding somebody accountable out of love, not judge them so that you can hold them to a sort of restricted rule standard. Okay, these are the two motivating things that I think underlie most of the problems in Christianity that we face, pride and fear. So much of our theology is based on fear. So much of what we do, our actions are based on pride. I mean, we could talk forever about pride and fear. They motivate so much, and you can get down to almost any issue in Christianity on these. So we identified some of it last week, just want to bring it back. And like I put in parentheses and really small at the bottom, and a little bit of ignorance doesn't hurt either to create what it is, this, this, this toxic brew that we have in the church. Here's some things to keep us on mission, some rules of engagement. We should be cautious not to put too much of an emphasis on politics, nor ignore it altogether. I mean, I'm not saying we should stay away from it. We are called to be light and be in the world, not to separate from it. But we shouldn't put our hope in it. This world is not our home. This is not going to be the way we're going to do it. God is not running the United States. And if Christians take over the White House and run the whole thing, that's still not going to work because we're still broken people. It's not our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Not changing the law the way we want it. Number two, nothing is gained if we win elections and lose our soul. Jesus says, what does it gain? What, is it, what does a man gain if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? But so many people have that thing where they put all their hope in winning elections, like that's the only thing. And I, I'm saying that because I reviewed all these websites of Christian groups that are politically active, and there's like nothing about the Christian agenda of like Christ's priorities. All of it is about the Christian agenda of getting people elected so we can keep the country conservative. So we can do what? Throw out illegal aliens? I'm not even sure that's what Jesus would have done. Separation may be better for both church and state. You guys know that I teach policy here in the business school, and you know we did a section on the separation of church and state and the history of it. The history of how we got where we are today in our, in our reading of the First Amendment on, on separation of church and state. And one of the God squatters in my class in the back raised his hand. <laughs> and I thought for sure... I thought for sure he was going to give me some sort of Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell type response. I was just tracing the history of it. I hadn't even said like how we got to the current 60 years of precedence that we now have in our court system where we really are supposed to almost start ditching religion out of every part of the public square, especially Christianity. And his hand's going wildly in the back. I thought, here it comes. Here comes the God squatter. So I go, okay, go ahead. Tell me what you have to say. And he said, I think it's good for church and state to be separate. I, was, I couldn't believe it came out of his mouth. And I asked him why. And he said, because if we ever hitch our entire church to the state, we're going down. I was so surprised that somebody from within the bubble was able to figure that out. He ended up writing his whole paper on it for the class about why it was bad for the church to have the First Amendment interpreted the way so many people in the church want it read. And it was a very well-written paper. And it argued very well that we should stay separate. And a lot of new voices in the church are saying that, like, hey, let's not lose sight. We never were a Christian nation. It's better that we stay separate because it's not our hope. Jesus is our hope. And we don't want to blend the two together, and there's a lot of ills that I could go into. If you want, I'll just give you this paper. Finally, we're biblically commanded to pray for our leaders. 
You know, I know so many Christians who when there's the wrong person in office or the wrong thing going on or the wrong person in the court who don't even catch themselves that they are not respecting, praying for, and obeying authority. That these people have been placed into authority by God. In His sovereignty, He can control every detail. And in the Bible, it even reveals to us that He controls the appointment of our leaders and that we should pray for them. I don't see, even if they're your enemy, I can't understand how we can't pray for them because even praying for our enemies is specifically commanded. Yeah. I also think that we should pray for not just this country's leaders, but all leaders. Mm-hmm. I hate the bumper sticker that says, God bless America. Who cares? Really? You know, and I think I saw another bumper sticker that said, God bless everyone. But like, what would that even look like, you know, if we had a whole like, church just praying for leaders of other countries, you know, the leaders of right. Iran. So, I mean, I think it needs to even go beyond political parties here, the world community. Sure, but a lot of people in our country, as you probably have identified already, don't know much about the outside world, right? We see that every day. Most Americans know so little about the outside world, so little about what's going on in the world. Most Americans, especially American Christians, would be shocked to find out there's more Christians outside of America than inside. <laughs> Just shock them to find out that, that Christianity has moved. It's in Asia now, right? And, it's, there's more, and yeah, there's more Christians in Asia probably just in China alone than in all of America. But that would shock most people, and those sign carriers would freak out. <laughs> How do we stay on mission? What does stay on mission mean? My, my, my closing admonitions here are about this. You know, when I was watching Amazing Grace this past week, I went back to see it so I could refresh my memory. I was struggling because here's a guy, William Wilberforce, who used the political structures of his time and used his office as an elected official to fight for the abolition of the slave trade. I was thinking, like, when do you do it and when do you stay away from it? When is it right to use the political structures and when are we supposed to use the church? How do you know the difference? And I guess for me, the only thing I come up with is we as a church and as Christians have to stay on mission no matter what device we're using. We have to stay on the focus. Here's some things to do it. Love has to be primary. Love is first. I'm citing John 3.16 and Luke 10.27. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to demonstrate God's love to everybody involved in the situation? You take any situation. It doesn't matter what it is. If you want to take the homosexuality debate, if you want to take the immigration debate, you want to take whether we should be pointing nuclear missiles, whatever the debate is, we should be using this paradigm. What's love in this situation? How do we show God's love? Love God, love your neighbor, that's primary. Number two, how are we reconcilers in this situation? Because that's what we're called to be. 2 Corinthians 5.16 and 18-20. to How do we move people to better understand God and how they can be reconciled to God? How are we doing that? You know, when we demonize people, we're not doing that. As a church, as Christians, as the body of Christ, how are we reconciling people? Do we have a passion for justice? Amos 5, 23 to 24. Are we, and this is a real key question for me, are we supporting justice or oppression? Because a lot of times, the difference is the motivation of what we're trying to do. Are we trying to really bring God's justice to the world? Because I hear in the immigration debate, and I, this is a good point to be made, there are people, for example, in the immigration debate, these people broke the law. God would not stand for law-breaking. That's true. 
We need to affirm that God is holy and just. But is your motivation to be just or to oppress? Is it motivated by prejudice or is it motivated by love? Is it motivated by the scripture passages that talk about being kind to the alien in your land or your fear that somebody's taking over? And I don't even know how I come out on that debate. But I do know that most of the voices that are in it seem to be more on the side of oppression. Just like some of the people that seem to be on the side of just allowing it seem to be on like, well, forget there's any rules. And I don't believe that either. But what's the motivation of our heart? What's legal in this matter? And how does that compare with what's just and righteous from God's perspective? Because laws are made all the time that don't reflect God's justice, his righteousness. His holiness. So if you're just going to stick to the legality of the law, I can name a number of laws that allow things that are not righteous or just. And finally, I think we have to do it with truth and grace. What is the truth? But even if you have the truth, even if you're holding a sign that says homosexuality is a sin, and even if that is true, which I believe the practice is a sin, is carrying a sign grace and love? Is that the best way to project the truth? Ryan. I think a good verse to add on to how you mentioned John 3.16 is John 3.17 where it says um, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Excellent. Excellent. And if he didn't send his son to condemn it, I don't know why his followers seem to think that they have the right to do it. Marvin Alasky is the editor-in-chief of World Magazine which is kind of a Christian I don't know, Christian Time Magazine, Christian Newsweek, on world events, says this, quote, cultural change leads to political changes. Cultural change. If a politician can fix a problem, it wasn't that big of a problem. If you understand how profound that statement is, you start to see what our motivation should be in the political arena. Politics is not the answer. It's changing the culture. It's being salt and being light. It's being the kingdom of God on earth here now. That's what we're called to be about. To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to feed, clothe, comfort, visit, all those things are the priorities of our Lord that change the culture. And when people are changed and culture is changed, politics doesn't stand a chance. It just goes with where the culture is going. We are cultural change agents. I wrote down here at the bottom... <coughs> As Christians, we're cultural change agents, bringing reconciliation between God and people. We are not ever going to legislate anyone into the kingdom. So the charge against us is that we're too political. Maybe it's because we've put our hope in politics. We, I mean, you guys sitting in this room probably like, not me, I don't even vote. But whatever it is, <laughs> I'm part of the slacker generation. I'm not carrying any signs because I don't explain video games. I can't get out of bed, right? <laughs> But whatever it is, we as a church are tagged by this stigma. That we've put our hope in politicians, our associations with politicians, and our hope in changing politics and changing laws because that's going to change people. If we outlaw homosexuality, if we outlaw gay marriage, if we outlaw, 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 everything's going to change. Do you really believe that? I don't. I believe that we can change the culture by being who Jesus was to his culture. Let's pray and close.
Lord, we've championed our country so much sometimes and we've bought into the myth of its greatness. And it is true that your providence and your blessing has been on this country like no other. But we've wasted it. While we sit on the resources of the entire world and the money that could feed, clothe, and take care of all illness in this world, we squander it on ourselves. And then we spend our time, Lord, collectively as a church, trying to enforce rules and to stigmatize and judge other people. Lord, where did we go wrong? Where did we become the guardians of this storehouse of wealth that you've given to us and yet not use it for your priorities? Lord, where did we start to put our hope in the political system, into democracies when we know that you're a king and that you've already established a kingdom and that we're part of that? Lord, help us to return to a better understanding. And Lord, I pray for the whole church because it might be easy for us to agree in this room, but we've got an entire church, Lord, that seems to have lost its way. Thank you, Lord, for the positive impacts that your people have made. Whether it's people like William Wilberforce or people like Martin Luther King Jr. and everybody in between, Lord, that have, have risen up and answered a call and found their hope and strength in you to do justice and mercy in this world and to do the right things. But Lord, it seems like we're short on people like that these days. Maybe you're calling somebody in this room to be that person. We pray for the whole church, Lord, that we would repent and come back to being cultural change agents. To love and be in this world the way that you would want us to be. Pray all this in your name. Amen.